Alone in his never-finished, already decaying pleasure palace, aloof, seldom visited, never photographed, an emperor of new sprint continued to direct his failing empire, vainly attempted to sway as he once did the destinies of a nation that had ceased to listen to him, ceased to trust him. Then, last week, as it must to all men, death came to Charles Foster Kane. News on the mark! They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. Today is episode 80, and I'm your host, Jeffrey Kelly, an old man from the Midwest. The idea of this podcast is to force me to watch films I wouldn't normally watch. And for that, I depend on you, the listener. So next time you see a movie that was weird and strange, hey, keep me in mind. I'll have information at the end of today's show on how you can reach me. Today, however, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to ramble a bit. But first, let me start out with a true story. Years ago, I used to post on Facebook... When films were going to be shown in Turner Classic Movies that I thought people should see. You know, if I noticed they were going to show Key Largo, The Godfather, Gilda, or even Creature from the Black Lagoon, I would post it. I would say something like, tonight on TCM at 9pm, the original The Blob, stuff like that. One night I posted that Citizen Kane, the 1941 classic by Orson Welles was going to be on. A friend of a relative, I'll call him Larry, made this comment. I saw it last time it was on. I wasn't impressed. Now, of course, everybody is entitled to their opinion, and while I respect Larry's opinion, I know that me and Larry will never have a conversation about films. There's just too large of a gap between the way we're thinking. On the other side, if you came up to me and said you don't mess with the Zohan, is the greatest comedy ever made? Well, same rules apply. Citizen Kane was one of the greatest achievements in American cinema, and it's still one of the greatest movies ever made. And if you can't see that, well, I can't help you. And I don't suppose anybody ever had so many opinions. But he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane. He never had a conviction except Charlie Kane in his life. I suppose he died without one been uh, pretty unpleasant. You see, I'm a big fan of Citizen Kane, as many are, and I've watched it many times. But there's more to my appreciation of this film than it just being a great revolutionary movie. There's a personal reason why I feel the way I do about this film, and I'll get into that a little later. First, however, what is Citizen Kane? The film starts off with an old man in his bedroom holding a snow globe, He mumbles the word rosebud and then drops the globe to the floor and it breaks open. His nurse rushes into the room to find the old man dead. 
cut to an old-fashioned newsreel. News on the march! Well, actually, it wasn't old-fashioned at the time. The newsreel reports the death of Charles Foster Kane and then gives a quick overview of Kane's life. When the newsreel ends, we discover the men who created the newsreel were having a viewing. They decide to delay the newsreel until one man, a reporter named Thompson, can figure out the meaning of Kane's last word, Rosebud. But who is she? What was that? Uh, Here's a man that could have been president, who was as loved and hated and as talked about as any man in our time. But when he comes to die, he's got something on his mind called Rosebud. Now, what does that mean? A race horse he bet on once. Yeah, that didn't come in. All right. But what was the race? <laughs> Rosebud. Thompson. Yes, Mr. Rosebud. All this picture up a week. Two weeks if you have to. I think right after his death, it might be Find out about Rosebud. And so Thompson goes to all the still living people who knew Cain. His second wife, Susan Alexander. Tell you he was really interested in my voice. What do you suppose he built that opera house for? I didn't want it. I didn't want to sing. It was his idea. Jedediah Leland, Kane's best friend from college, who also worked for his newspaper, The Inquirer. Bernstein, am I a stuffed shirt? Am I a horse-faced hypocrite? Am I a New England school marm? Yes. Mr. Bernstein, Kane's friend and employee at the Inquirer. Hey, Mr. Kane, as long as you're promising, there's a lot of pictures and statues in Europe you haven't bought yet. You can't blame me, Mr. Bernstein. And Raymond, Kane's butler. I tell you about Rosebud. How much is it worth to you? Thousand dollars? He also reads the personal writings of Walter Park Thatcher. A banker who was Kane's legal guardian. Mr. Thompson, you will be required to leave this room at 4.30 promptly. You will confine yourself, it is our understanding, to the chapters in Mr. Thatcher's manuscript regarding Mr. Kane. That's all I'm interested in. With flashback after flashback, we learn the details of Kane's complicated life. He grew up rich and after college decides there is only one of his possessions that interests him, and that's a small newspaper. Dear Mr. Thatcher. It's from Mr. Kane. Go on. Sorry, but I'm not interested in gold mines, oil wells, shipping, or real estate. Not interested. Naughty. One item on your list intrigues me, the New York Inquirer. A little newspaper. I understand we acquired in a foreclosure proceeding. Please don't sell it. I'm coming back to America to take charge. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. And he begins building the world's largest media empire. Is that really your idea of how to run a newspaper? I don't know how to run a newspaper, Mr. Thatcher. I just try everything I can think of. There's a wife, an affair with a young woman, a would-be singer, who becomes a second wife, a failed political career, and a fallout with his best friend. It's a rags-to-riches story, the rise and fall of Cain, and his search for love under his own terms, and the selling out of his principles. Charles Foster Kane was, perhaps, trying to recover that security, hope, and innocence of childhood that he lost when he was taken away from his mother. As for the word rosebud, Thompson never figures it out. If you could have found out what that rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. No, I don't think so. No. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get or something he lost. But we, the audience, well, we find out the truth at the very end. 
Now I could talk for a long time about this film, not only about the plot, but the making of the film because it's really an amazing tale. From a young Orson Welles getting complete creative control for his first film to the men it's actually based on, mainly William Randolph Hearst, but with a little of Joseph Pulitzer thrown in. There's the dispute of who actually wrote it, Herman J. Mekowitz or Orson Welles, the genius of cinematographer Greg Toland, and the amazing depth of field. There's the on-screen injuries to Welles, and the attempt to have the film destroyed before it failed and then became known as one of the greatest cinematic achievements ever made. There's so much to talk about, I can't guarantee I'll hit everything, but I'll try, and like I said, I'll probably ramble a bit. The big question is, how did Orson Welles, at the age of 24, who never directed a film before, get complete creative control? That's unheard of in Hollywood. Orson Welles was born in 1915 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And, on a side note here, I once drove up to Kenosha just to see his boyhood home. I don't live too far from there. He was a boy genius right from the start, and he knew it. By 23, he was both writing and directing for the stage and for the radio. Did you know he was the original voice of The Shadow? Five murders in five days. Isn't there some way to stop them? You're just going to sit by On the by contrary, and... my dear Margot, I'm not going to sit. I'm going to ride, and you're riding with me. What are you talking about? When are we riding? To the place where the dead, even those who are <laughs> hanged by the neck, should be. His most famous stage production was a 1936 adaption of Macbeth with an all-African-American cast. His most famous radio play was the infamous radio adaption of H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, for his own Mercury Theater on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. Now, I'm sure you've heard the stories about how the broadcast frightened America, that many people believed the world was actually being attacked by Martians. I'm pretty sure that those stories that we've heard are overblown. I don't think that the legendary panic was all that it was reported. It was probably more of a product of the media trying to create a good story and what a good story it was because it persisted for over 80 years. But that's another story for another day. The fact is, the reported panic propelled Wells into international fame, and it wasn't long before Hollywood came crawling. Wells had been asked to direct before, but he turned down these offers, preferring to remain in the theater. RKO Picture Studio head George A. Schaefer thought Wells had some unique way of attracting attention. And at the time, the studio was doing really well not normal for RKO, and they wanted to make some independent, artistically prestigious films. As it turned out, Wells was in a bit of financial trouble after a couple of his latest plays had failed. His original intention was to spend a few months in Hollywood just to make enough money to pay his bills and possibly fund another play. And you know, the best way to get a good deal is to act like you're not interested, so Orson ended up getting a mind-blowing deal. The contract he signed was that he would act and direct, produce, and write two films. 
which was very odd because up to this time, there's only been really one man who's ever been able to do all those things, and that was Charlie Chaplin. Anyway, Mercury Theater would get $100,000 for the first film, plus 20% of the profits after RKO recouped a half million dollars, and $125,000 for a second film, plus 20% of the profits, after RKO again recouped $500,000. The biggest and most controversial part of the deal was that Wells had complete artistic control of the two films, as long as RKO approved both project stories. Once in production, Wells didn't have to show any executive any footage until Wells decided they could do so. This was completely unheard of for a first-time director, or almost unheard of for any director, and instantly the press started making fun of RKO and Wells. There were many, even at RKO, who wanted to tell Schaefer, I told you so, when Wells failed. Variety columnist George Barr wrote, I would be willing to bet something that Wells will not complete a picture. A genius is a crackpot on a tightrope. Hollywood is watching Orson Welles, wondering if his foot will slip. And W.R. Wilkerson, publisher of The Hollywood Reporter, described the situation more concisely. He said, RKO President George Schaefer is just plain nuts. But the truth is, Schaefer was convinced that Wells was going to make something amazing. Now, to prepare for the film, Orson wanted to learn all he could about filmmaking, so night after night, he would screen John Ford's classic Stagecoach. Wells said, I screened Stagecoach every night for a month with somebody from the studio, and then asked questions. Now, the film took months to get started. His first idea was to make Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and after a lot of planning, it was decided that his budget just wasn't big enough. World War II was beginning, and RKO was concerned about the overseas market, so they didn't want to spend a lot of money. Eventually, he was taking so long trying to get a picture started that he was in danger of losing his contract. And then he met Herman J. Mankiewicz. Mankiewicz was an alcoholic screenwriter who was part of William Randolph Hearst's inner circle. He had been collecting stories about Hearst for years and really learned to hate Hearst over time. On a side note here, he was the brother of Joseph L. Mankiewicz, a celebrated Hollywood writer and director, and the grandfather of Ben Mankiewicz, the host of Turner Classic Movies. Anyway, John Houseman, who was Orson Welles' partner in the theater, said of Mankiewicz that he was a neurotic drinker and a compulsive gambler. He was also one of the most intelligent, informed, witty, humane, and charming men I have ever known. And Wells found Mankiewicz just at the right time. He was recuperating from a car accident and was in between jobs. On top of that, he had been fired from quite a few jobs recently for his drinking and gambling. Anyway, Wells and Mankiewicz got together and began working on the screenplay. Now, who actually wrote what is a long-standing point of controversy that still exists today. I could probably write a whole Celluloid Days episode on the writing of Citizen Kane alone. But we do know that Mankiewicz wrote the first two drafts in which he called The American. 
He worked on the scripts away from Hollywood in a place called Victoryville with John Houseman watching over him, making sure that he didn't indulge too much in his vices. At the same time, Wells began developing his own ideas. Once Wells got Menkowitz's script, he began combining the two. In this podcast, I don't have time to go over all the scripts and how the ideas developed into the cane we all know and love today, but it is fascinating. There were many plot elements that, in the end, had to be cut out for one reason or another, including an assassination attempt on the president, which resulted in Kane's son being killed. Anyway, Mankiewicz would later claim that Wells offered him money so Wells could take full credit for writing the picture. Wells denied that. Then there was a 1971 essay by influential film critic Pauline Kael called Raising Cain, in which she claimed the entire screenplay belongs to Mankiewicz. Yet all the versions of the scripts are available, and those who've looked them over say that each man wrote about the same. Wells said, At the end, naturally, I was the one making the picture. After all, who had to make the decisions? I used what I wanted of Manx, and, rightly or wrongly, I kept what I liked of my own. Film scholar Robert L. Keringer, who researched and studied all versions of the script, said, The full evidence reveals that Wells' contribution to the Citizen Kane script was not only substantial but definitive. The fact is, both men would receive Academy Awards for Best Writing of an Original Screenplay, the only Academy Awards this film would win. And remember, kids, the docudrama films like RKO 281 from 1999, Me and Orson Welles from 2009, and Manx from 2020 are fictionalized versions of the story. Don't believe it all. Now, the screenplay was awesome, but the cinematography was even better. The biggest break Wells got was when Greg Toland got involved. Tolan had been working in Hollywood since 1929 and was a very well-respected cinematographer. Legend has it that Tolan volunteered to work on the film because he was excited to work with a first-time director. Wells said in a 1970 interview, Tolan came to my office and said, I want to work in your picture. My name is Toland. And I said, Why do you, Mr. Toland? And he said, because you've never made a picture. You don't know what cannot be done. So I said, but I really don't. Can you tell me? And Tolan said, there's nothing to it. And he gave me a day and a half lesson, and he was right. The fact is, Wells would say years later that you can learn all you need to know to master filmmaking in a day and a half. Good evening, Mr. Kane. There is a man.
Just like the controversy on who wrote Kane, there is a bit also on who is responsible for the visual style of the film. Was it Wells directing or Toland's cinematography? I don't know, but whoever is responsible, it looks amazing. The use of deep focus and high contrast is what's so unique. You see, in those days, to get a deep focus, which is to keep things in the foreground and in the background both in focus, was almost impossible. You needed a lot of light, more than what was available. And remember, those lights back in the 40s were very, very hot. But by the time they shot this, there were many advances in the technology that made getting better depth of field. Antolin was already experimenting with such camera techniques on films he'd worked on like Wuthering Heights, The Grapes of Wrath, and The Long Voyage Home. But with Citizen Kane, he was really allowed to indulge himself. Yet for some shots they wanted, it just wasn't possible. So for some shots, to get sharp focus on both the foreground and background, they used composite shots, some done in camera, masking out one part of the frame, filming the action, rewinding the camera, then masking out the area that was already filmed, and shooting some more action. And some were done in post-production, combining two or three shots with an optical printer. Tolan hated this method because it really meant making a copy of the film, which reduced quality. And there were other challenges, like Wells wanted ceilings in his shot. If you look at films from that period, usually the walls just went up and up and you never see the ceiling. That allowed the filmmakers to put lights up high to shine down on the actors. But because Wells wanted to see the ceiling, it was a challenge to light the scenes. Wells felt having these things, the ceilings in the scene and the depth of field, gave the film a more realistic feel. He wanted to make the audience forget they were watching a movie. And I read that Wells would try to come up with difficult shots to challenge Tolan to see if he could accomplish them. Now, before Wells even got permission to start filming the movie, he began filming. He got around the rules by calling what he was doing test footage, but he was really making his film, starting with the opening scene in which the newsreel men are talking about Kane and Rosebud in the screening room. He actually used one of the real RKO screening rooms as a set. Get in touch with everybody that ever worked for him, whoever loved him, whoever hated his guts. I don't mean go through the city directory, of course. I'll get on it right away, Mr. Olson. Good. Rosebud. Dead or alive. It'll probably turn out to be a very Of course, thing. one of the most famous stories, and you've probably heard it before, is when Orson couldn't get the camera low enough for the conversation of Kane and Jedediah after he's lost the election. So to get the camera lower, legend has it, that he found a sledgehammer and began to break up the floor, digging a huge hole so he can put the camera in it. Now, before I get into some of my favorite scenes, I want to talk about why, personally, this film means a lot to me. When I was young, a long time ago, in the 7th or 8th grade, at Allen B. Shepard Jr. High School, I took a film study course. I don't remember a lot of what we watched. I seem to remember seeing the Odessa Steps sequence from Battleship Potemkin, bits of Birth of a Nation, and the last film we watched, I remember, was Shane. But the one that stands out, of course, was this one, Citizen Kane. Now at the time, I had never heard of this film. I thought films were things like 
Dirty Mary Crazy Larry, The Poseidon Adventure, The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, and The Ghost and Mr. Chicken. All of which, you know, are great films, but... I saw Kane and I was mesmerized. I remember after, I was trying to tell my friends all about it. I had never seen anything like it. I mean, to start a film with a newsreel and sort of map out Kane's entire life, it's just amazing. And then it's all done with non-linear storytelling. Hey kids, Quentin Tarantino didn't invent that. The shots, the angles, and of course, the surprise ending just amazed me. The way it looked, the feel of the movie, everything was nothing like I'd ever seen before. I think I bored many friends and probably my brothers trying to explain what I saw. It was seeing this film that made me realize that films could be much more than a Sunday afternoon amusement. That filmmaking could be a work of art. Anyway, now we'll get into a few of my favorite scenes. The one I always talk about is the flashback of Kane as a young boy. Kane's mother, played by Agnes Moorhead, who was one of Wells' Mercury Theater actors, had been left a worthless mind by one of her boarders. She and her husband, played by Harry Shannon, live in a Colorado boarding house in the hills. When gold is discovered in the mind, she becomes rich she made the difficult decision to send young Charles away to be raised by a banker, Mr. Thatcher, played by George Colerice. He will become Kane's legal guardian. We get the idea that not only does she, right or wrong, want her child to be raised and educated properly, but also to get the boy away from his abusive father. She acts cold and a matter-of-fact about everything, when it's time to tell the boy, she walks to the window and opens it. Charles is outside, playing with his sled in the snow. She begins to call to him, and suddenly her voice cracks, and we can see a lump in her throat. It's just for a moment. But at that moment, we realize that her heart is breaking over what she feels she must do. Everything else, the principal as well as all money's earned, is to be administered by the bank in trust for your son Charles Foster Kane until he reaches his 25th birthday, at which time he is to come into complete possession. Charles! Go on, Mr. Thatcher. Well, uh, it's almost five, Mrs. Kane. Don't you think I'd better meet the boy? I've got his trunk all packed. I've had it packed for a week now. Inside, beneath that cold exterior, she's being torn apart. It's a subtle little thing that gets me every time. When Joseph Cotton, who's playing Jedediah Leland, is telling the story of the slow decline of Kane's first marriage to Emily, who's played by Ruth Warwick, it's done with quick scenes of them at breakfast over the years. They go from a loving marriage to not speaking at all. And now, how could one not love the scene in which Kane, who is running for governor of New York, and looks like he will win the election for sure, his first step onto the presidency, is called to an apartment with his wife by boss Jim Geddes, played by Ray Collins, who's his political rival. Kane had claimed that he was going to send Jim Geddes to jail once he's elected. But now Jim Geddes, Kane, his wife, and Kane's girlfriend are together in an apartment and Getty threatens to expose his affair with Susan Alexander played by Dorothy Cummingore 
unless he drops out of the race. Kane, in his ignorance, refuses. Don't worry about me, Gettys. Don't worry about me! I'm Charles Foster Kane! I'm no cheap, crooked politician trying to save himself from the consequences of his crimes! Gettys! I'm going to send you to Sing Sing! Sing Sing, Gettys! Sing Sing! But I think my favorite scene is the one where Susan Alexander finally leaves Kane. He approaches her and seems like, for a moment, he's got her convinced to stay. But then he says one line, and that blows it. Please, Susan. From now on, everything will be exactly the way you want it to be. Not the way I think you want it, but your way. Hmm? Mustn't go. You can't do this to me. I see. It's you that this is being done to. It's not me at all. Not what it means to me. I can't do this to you. Oh, yes, I can. Now, interestingly, after she leaves Kane, he goes back into her room and begins to smash it apart. Now, to make Wells look older, he was wearing contacts, but that made it difficult to see. At the very end, Wells cuts his wrist badly. If you watch the film, you can see him quickly put his hand behind his back to hide the wound. Also, in the Jim Gettys scene on the stairs, apparently he slipped and fell 10 feet, causing two bone chips in his ankle. He was directing from a wheelchair for about two weeks. In some scenes, you can see him limping, but that sort of works when he's an old man. And if I remember it correctly, when Thompson is interviewing Jed Leland as an old man in a nursing home, the reason why it looks very odd is because the shooting of that scene was bumped up because of Orson Welles' injury, and they didn't have the sets ready, so they used some sort of rear projection or early green screen technology or something to put a fake background in behind Joseph Cotton. I was his oldest friend, and as far as I was concerned, he behaved like a swine. Not that Charlie was ever brutal, he, he just did brutal things. Maybe I wasn't his friend, but if I wasn't, he never had one. And you know, I know it's been said before, but I'll repeat it, that the real life of Orson Welles in some ways match Kane's. Not as much as some would have you believe, but there is some similarities. Now, I'm a big fan of Orson Welles. I watch every interview that's available of Welles on YouTube. He's a great raconteur, and I just, I just love listening to hear him talk. And I like all his movies. I mean, Journey into Fear, Lady from Shanghai, Macbeth, Othello, Mr. Arcadian, Touch of Evil, The Trial, and even Chimes at Midnight. They're all wonderful. And though many of them had studio interference, I think his genius shows through. There is one story Wells would tell in his later years about a meeting William Randolph Hearst in an elevator. Apparently, he asked Hearst if he had ever seen Citizen Kane, and Hearst responded no. When the elevator stopped and Hearst started walking away, Wells yelled, Kane would have. 
I guess that was an attempt for Wells to show William Randolph Hearst that the character of Cain isn't necessarily based on him. And it is true that Hearst tried to stop this film from being released. He even pressured the other studios who offered to pay RKO for the film if they had it destroyed. Luckily for us, RKO refused. As far as the music, it was done by Bernard Herrmann, the American composer and conductor who did a ton of music, including a lot of work for Alfred Hitchcock. And the music in this film is fantastic. It can be happy or whimsical or dark and moody. One of the bits that is especially strange is the combination of Susan Alexander's singing voice mixed with some dark music. If you're one of those people who have not watched Kane because everybody says it's great and you're supposed to watch it, and I know this is one of those films that people who hate it think that everybody who likes it just does so because, well, we're lemmings. Well, they're wrong, and you should probably give it a watch. You might actually like it. What are we going to do? What aren't we going to do? Yeah! Why should he get to ditch? Something's going on. Life moves pretty fast. You're crazy! If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. A little bit before I go. Wells had one big regret with Citizen Kane. Many assume that the character of Susan Alexander Kane was based on William Randolph Hearst's real young girlfriend, Marion Davis. Wells always denied this and felt bad for Davis that people made the connection between her and Susan Alexander, since she wasn't like that at all. If anything, Susan Alexander was based on Gaina Waska, the second wife of Harold Fowler McCormick. McCormick had promoted her opera career, just like Susan Alexander, and according to reports, she had a terrible singing voice, like Alexander. He also thought that the rosebud thing was just a cheap gimmick that was just there so they could tell the story. Now, if you've got any thoughts on Citizen Kane, Orson Welles, or anything else connected with today's show, you can email me at daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. That's daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. In fact, you can email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. We also have a Facebook page. It's called Celluloid Days. And a Twitter page, or an X page, I guess. It's, it's at Celluloid underscore Days. Next week, I'm going to talk about a little film called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. A young listener named Aiden sent me an email asking me to review it, and so I thought, why not? It might be fun. I haven't seen that movie in a long time. And thank you, Aiden, for the email. 
Now, before I leave, I have one more request. If you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'll be back next Wednesday. Oh, by the way, I know I'm a day late today, but what can I do? I'll be back next Wednesday, so take care. Goodbye. See ya. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can't play the piano.